I hope today finds you well. Yes, yes. Awake, hopefully. Uh-huh. <laughs> we'll be in 2 John today, if you want to turn there, towards the end of your Bibles. When I was in high school, I used to compete in cross-country. Um, that was the sport in the States is a little different as far as you're competing against other schools on a weekly basis uh, during certain seasons. And uh, with all the miles we logged, I was in pretty good shape. And, and I remember thinking to myself in my ignorance and youth, you know, when walking becomes exercise for me, that will be pretty pathetic. Well, the day has come. <laughs> walking is definitely a good exercise uh, because my knees talk to me and um, other things. So, yeah, I, I'm very conscious about where I run and how long I run. And I don't do a lot of running anymore. But... Uh, most people, they, I, I would say that they need to regularly exercise to be fit, and you need to regularly exercise to stay fit. And uh, we talk about our following Jesus as being a walk. It's something that's a pursuit. It's continual. And uh, it's no walk in the park. It's not, it is exercise. It is trying. It's difficult. And it, there's hard work, diligence, trying to be persistent, wait, wa- walking away from the Lord at times, maybe losing sight of him, uh, falling down and having him lift us up because he's never left us. There's times where we celebrate victory, and it, it is tiring, but he's the one who sustains us. It's interesting that there is rest for weary souls, but it's found in walking with Jesus. It's not sitting down and just letting him, okay, I'll catch up. But we actually find rest when we're walking with him. He's the one who sustains us. So let's pray, and we'll start to John. Father in heaven, thanks so much that you are great. You are almighty. There is nothing difficult for you. There's nothing hard for you. You ask in your word, is anything too hard for me? And Lord, we say resoundingly, no, nothing is too hard for you because you are the God who does everything. And we praise you that you're able to speak to us and enable us to hear. You're able to lift us up from being dead in trespasses and sins and making us alive again. And you're able to give us eternal life and to make our lives profitable here on earth that we have great reward in following you and in walking with you. So we praise you, Lord, for uh, the truth of your scripture. Thank you for this uh, freedom you've given us to gather and that we can walk with you and that everything you've called us to do, by your grace, we can do. So I pray, Lord, our ears would be open to you, our eyes would be would be wide to see the things you would have us to implement in our lives and that we'd trust you and believe you and praise you for the awesome God you are in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 John has many several it has a lot of similar themes to 1 John that we've just gone through. It's uh, believed to be written in the last of the first century. So I've seen ranges from 60 to 90 A.D. The main emphasis of the book is an exhortation to walk in the truth of God and for Christians to be on guard against error. And it's good, I think, to be reading something that's almost a reminder, in a sense, of what we've been going through over the past months in 1 John. Because knowing God's word is one thing, but actually doing it 
is another thing entirely. And we have so many uh, truth claims that are in the world. Would you agree that we have a lot of access to information and a lot of them claim to be true and they'll have their sources and and then we have to see if those sources are verifiable and and there, it's so much information that it's hard to sort it through. And we need to be careful to approve God's truth because in John's day there were many people who claimed to know the truth, who claimed to be walking in the truth, but they weren't in the truth. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes 12, I thought I'd read and starting, it's Ecclesiastes 12, verse 10. It says, the preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Those who are going to take the HSC, you you would agree that much study is wearisome to the flesh. But he says the things that he has written, he tried to find upright words, true words. It's like when you have a, a plumb bob that you would hang and you'd be able to tell if something's straight, right? A spirit level, it's going to tell you if that wall is plumb or not. And so the truth is like a plumb line. It's straight up and down. And it doesn't change. And there's no end to books and DVDs and teachings, but we are given the words of truth by one shepherd, by Jesus Christ and by his word. And the words of truth, they're compared to two things in that passage, to goads and to well-driven nails. Now, a goad would be a pointy stick, basically. It had some weight to it, and it was something that would not injure the ox, but it would definitely get its attention when you prodded it. It would make the ox go in a direction that you want it to go. And in the same way, God's word, it prods us, it wakes us up, it brings us to our senses to go in a direction we wouldn't naturally go in, to go in a way that that we it never entered our mind that we would be like an ox is pulling a plow or walking in this line. It's not thinking in those terms, but the goad helps it to know where to go. And also like a well-driven nail. A well-driven nail is one that's driven straight. It's holding things together. It's building something that's going to stand. And a life that we is built on God's truth, on the foundation of Christ, it's going to stand upright and plumb, even in a storm, Jesus said, that if you hear his words and do them, He'll liken you to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And no matter what is thrown at it, the wind, the rain, the waves, it's going to stand. And so that's us as believers if we make those wise choices. So to John, starting in verse 1, it says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be in us forever, with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God, the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. It's a lot of repetition of the word truth in those verses. The book does not contain the name of the author, nor does it say specifically the person to whom it is addressed. It's to the elect lady and her children, there was a lot of persecution in the early church, and it may be that to protect people, their actual names weren't written. 
So if this letter was to be in their possession, and they were of the way which people were being persecuted for, they could avoid that. Some have also suggested that the lady is symbolic of the church and the children are her members. But on the surface, it seems plain uh, that it's written to an elect or a Christian woman who had children, and she also entertained guests. She would bring people to her home. Perhaps there's even a church in her home. And regardless of whether it's to an individual or to a church in code, uh, it's relevant for us today. It's very practical for us to take note of. And uh, from the beginning, the author th- authorship of 2 John was attributed to John. And it says there that he loved this woman and her children along with all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. I like that Jesus identifies himself as the truth in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So truth, what is truth? Remember Pilate asking that? What is truth? We live in a world that's always asking, what is truth? Uh, we, there's many who claim to know truth, but at the same time we wonder, what is truth? And truth is a real representation. It's conformity to reality. If you're a true witness, you're going to speak, your words are going to align with what actually happened, right? That would be telling the truth, being honest about it. Being the logos, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, the absolute truth of God is also related to the word in John 17, 17. Jesus, when he prayed, it said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is the truth, and we see that the word of God is truth. God does not change. The truth does not change. If the truth is changing, then it wasn't the truth. I like that the truth of God transcends this world, that he is the truth. He does not change. It doesn't depend upon how we feel upon how how much we remember or what we do. It stands by itself unchanging. John says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So all of this truth is built upon the foundation of Jesus, that we have grace, mercy, and peace from God that will be with us forever. So that is a great birthright as a Christian, that we have these things present in our lives with us. And God's word is an accurate picture of reality. This is the reality. Sometimes it doesn't feel like the reality, but this is the truth. And that's why God's word is so important. It's like that nail where you're saying, Lord, build my faith upon this, that I have grace from you, which is is favor that I cannot earn and I cannot, I do not deserve, mercy because you are merciful, and peace, a connection with God that cannot be broken by anything that happens. In human court, you would say that people don't always remember everything truthfully, right? Even if you do your very best. I remember a case that I was involved with many years ago on an aircraft carrier that Uh, I had to appear before a grand jury because there had been some asbestos uh, contamination. So it was a really big deal. 
and I met with federal agents multiple times, and they, they brief us. I had to go over my notes, and the trouble was is we had to do this, uh, we had to go on the stand a year plus after it had happened. So it was really hard for me to remember like what day and what time something happened. The person, like the, the, the events, the timeline of events, the phone call that was made at what time of the day, the people we talked to, like after a year, and now it's been over 13 years, I'd be a horrible witness today. Like I remember some basics, but as far as if you were to grill me, I wouldn't be able to tell you all the truth. But God's word, it gives us the whole truth. It doesn't hold anything back. God's truth doesn't depend upon your ability to remember that verse. That verse is still true whether you can remember it or not. It's good for us to remember it. But God's truth stands. It is established. And God's truth is not dependent on my performance or my ability to try to do my part. We have a part to do. But God's truth stands. So that is really comforting where we read this word of God and we know that we're reading the truth. Just a verse, if you want to turn to it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, speaking about God. There's some of these themes repeated in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 of what we just read. says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. We can see some distinctions here between mercy, grace, and Jesus, who is our peace. That God is rich in mercy, infinitely rich in mercy. And because of his love for us, not because I deserved anything from God, when we were dead in trespasses, he's made us alive through faith in Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. So it's by God's grace we've been saved, not because of anything I've done, but because he is rich in mercy. And we can draw upon these things continually. We talked about it last week, that we have heavenly resources at our disposal. We need to draw upon these through faith. Believe that God is merciful. Believe that God is gracious. Believe that God loves you because we can forget. We forget that he loves us and all that he's done for us. We sang in that song where like, when I see the blood of Jesus, I see perfect love. That's the picture of love that God has, that he would send his own son whom he loves, that he would shed his blood for you, who were dead in sins so that you could be part of his family forever. It's amazing. That is love we do not know. 2 John verse one, chapter 1, starting in verse 4. We enter in the body of the letter. It says, I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. John was really excited because he found children of this woman who were walking in the truth. And he says, I rejoice greatly that I found some of your kids 
doing the right thing, walking in truth. Sometimes parents catch their kids doing the wrong thing. It's a great joy when you catch them doing the right thing. You know, you their lights on late at night, and you're like, what, they're on their phone? They shouldn't be on their phone, and they're talking quietly. And You open the door, and they're praying. You're like, well, cool, all right. This is, this is a pleasant surprise. Or the uh, same thing, you know, it's late at night or early in the morning, and the light's on, you're thinking, what are they doing? And, it, and they're reading the Bible and taking notes. And it's like, as a parent, you would rejoice to see that. You'd rejoice to 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 give that report, and you would also rejoice to hear that report, where you hear from a teacher or a friend saying, oh, you know what, they were really hurting, and and he or she was so gentle and kind and stopped the bullying or did this, you know, helped them or gave something to help. And you're like, right on. I rejoice to hear that. God rejoices when we do what is right. So John, he rejoices to give a good report. I'm sure this lady rejoiced to receive the report. And on this point, I think it is important as parents and believers to provide a good example of godliness for others. It's in Proverbs 22.6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Training is not accidental. Training involves having a purpose and a reason for what you're doing. I think of the movie Karate Kid. I used to love that movie back in the day. Where Mr. Miyagi's making Daniel Russo do all these chores, and he's telling him to do these chores in a certain way. Now, Daniel has no idea what he's actually doing. He just thinks that he's waxing cars and painting fences and scrubbing the floor. But in actuality, he was being trained for something, trained to fight, to defend himself, to be the karate kid. He wouldn't have been the karate kid except he went through this training. And so, as a parent, as a, as a brother in Christ, as a sister in Christ, we are to be intentional in doing the right thing, knowing that God is training you and that he has plans and purposes for your life. I love it. Daniel didn't know he was being trained, but Mr. Miyagi knew. We don't really know when we're being trained or what we're being trained for, but God is training. He's doing something, and let's trust him. Let's be obedient to him. Now, the Proverbs are not promises. They are guidelines. They're not guarantees. You would agree that there's been many people who have been trained in the admonition of the Lord, but have chosen to forsake that, right? But just because there's an exception to the rule doesn't mean the rule is invalid. The rule still stands that if you train someone in the way they should go, they will remain in that training. Uh, and I suggest that the elect lady had much to do with her children's behavior because she had trained them in the ways of righteousness. John rejoiced to see the children of God walking in truth, yet he pleads with the woman, and he includes himself. He says, we should do this, that we should love one another. So this woman had been loving people, but she needed this reminder. Her kids, they were doing the right thing. But he's like, we need to keep loving people. We need to love one another as God has loved us. And this loving one another is speaking primarily of fellow believers. We may have obeyed Jesus yesterday, but we also need to obey him today and tomorrow. So this is an exhortation, a reminder that we all need. 
Even though this woman, she's elect, you know, she is born again. She is heading to heaven, but she needed this reminder. We need to love, and we also need this reminder. We know that loving one another is not limited to the Christian community. We see Jesus demonstrating his love by dying on Calvary for sinners, right? He didn't love Peter and John, but he withheld love from Judas because he knew that Judas was going to betray him. So he kind of like, ah, you know that guy. I don't trust him. I know what he's going to do. In fact, he was the one that was given the money bag. He was given responsibility that others didn't have. So Jesus showed love for him, even though he knew. He's like, one of you is a child of the devil, but he still loved him. Now, our love as believers is seen because we love one another. That's how people can know we're Christians, by our love. And Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. I can't say I love God while I am hating my brother. It cannot, it does not add up. The sums do not agree. If you wonder what love looks like, we need look no further than the life of Jesus and how he served people, how he helped people, how he went to them. He put aside his own life to, to go to others in need, to help them, to encourage them, to teach them, to heal according to God's word. John wanted to, he was later in his years, and this woman, she was established in the faith, but there was a desire for them to be growing in faith, to be growing in love, to continue in something. And we can have this idea that for us to mature spiritually, we need to discover something new. We think we need to learn something new or different, and, and in, in our, perhaps in our pursuit of those things, we forget to do the basics. The fundamentals are left undone. And there's no shortage of books or podcasts or conferences. And, and we all love to hear something new. I mean, we, we do. The truth is, we mature spiritually the best when we do the basic things better. That's how we grow. Is not by just learning about a new discovery, but actually doing the, the thing that you know is good and right, doing that better and more faithfully. I think about a professional athlete, say a cricketer. Now, a, a lot of these guys and girls, they've got coaches. They're professional athletes, but they have a coach. And the coach is not to help them be better at lawn bowls or to become power lifters. The reason why they have a cricket coach is so they can be better cricketers. People who know their game, they, they are established in the basics. And if they get into a slump, if they start having some bad days in the crease or with the ball... They return to what? The basics. They don't try, like, you know what? You've been a right arm fast your entire career. Let's go left arm spin. That will really give you an edge. No, it won't. The reason why you got your professional level is right arm pace. And so you need to work on those fundamentals. Get back to the basics and you will be a better cricketer. You'll be the best you can be. And so in the same way, in following Jesus, when he says, guys, I have one commandment to you. Love one another as I have loved you. They don't go, okay, yeah, and? What's after that? All right, we got that down. We all have room to grow in loving one another. It's, it's not something that you master to the point where you don't need to think about it anymore. We need to keep thinking about it. 
And we see that this reminder comes for us. We need to love as Jesus loves. We have to know the truth to walk in the truth. God's word is truth. And love is evidence that we are walking in truth. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we have worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Early in the church, there was no shortage of heresy that was seeking to undermine the truth of God's word, which opposed the gospel. There were some who denied that Jesus was the Christ. They, they said, well, he wasn't the Messiah, or some that said he wasn't really in the flesh. He was an apparition. He appeared to be a man, but he really wasn't a man. And when he died on the cross, he really didn't die. He just looked like he died. And some that said, well, he really didn't rise from the dead. They had all these ideas, and, and there were these uh, circulation of the Gnostic Gospels and, and false scriptures which sought to turn people away from the faith. It's interesting to note that the Old Testament canon was well established before Jesus came around 3 B.C. The Septuagint was written, which has all of our books of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, the scriptures in that day, were already established before Jesus came. So these other gospels, these spurious ones, they were still a temptation, though, for people to depart from the truth that they knew and to uh, be to receive the truth of another gospel, which is no gospel at all. So the John, the points that John's bringing up, these are critical. These are doctrines about Jesus. If you deny these doctrines, then all of Scripture is undermined, and you cannot be saved without them. That Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross for our sins. He, he died. He was buried and he rose from the dead according to the scriptures, and he's now ascended and is in the heaven with the Father. So those, those are critical because it involves the person of Jesus. One thing John does not do that he does in John 3, he does not name names as far as who these deceivers or antichrists are. There's no Crime Stoppers Most Wanted Heretic list. You know, beware of these guys. You know, this is... You know, don't buy their books. You know, he's not talking about that. I think it's wise because um, for us, we need to know that the spirit of Antichrist is in the world, the spirit that would oppose Jesus and undermine his truth. And it's not just a few people that we need to be on guard with. It could be anywhere. And he's telling this to the lady, saying, look to yourselves, be careful that you're not one of them who is turned aside after falsehood. You need to keep walking in the right way. You love Jesus. You follow him. I've got great reports of your kids, but look to yourself. Make sure that you're not falling prey to these lies. He says, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. We can be a bit overwhelmed with the, the amount of ideas there are in the world and what is truth. And uh, she was not exhorted to waste energy in searching out 
where these deceivers were, to learn every deception so she could be guarded against it. No, she was to be in the truth of God's word. And if you know the truth, if you see the standard, you don't need to know how much error there could be. You need to stick to that. We don't need to be overwhelmed with the abundance of heretics that exist. Having fixed our eyes on Jesus, we can examine ourselves to say, am I walking in the truth? It reminds me of these questions that Paul posed to the self-righteous in Romans 2, 21 through 23. He says, you therefore who teach another, do not teach yourself. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? This is a look to yourselves question. Saying, this is what you take a stand for, but is that true in your life? It does me little good to point out doctrinal heretics if I don't love fellow believers, right? You would agree that if I am not doing the one thing that Jesus has said to do, it doesn't matter that I can observe faults in others. It really does me no good. We won't be rewarded for our observations of others, but for our belief and obedience to God. So what is this full reward John is speaking of? It's not speaking of salvation. It does suggest that we could receive a full reward or a partial reward based upon our adherence to doctrine. Because if we don't know the truth, we may not be walking in the truth, and we will lose effectiveness of our witness. There are rewards God grants on earth and some reserve for heaven. False doctrine leads us astray, and it causes us to be less fruitful in our lives. When, when our family first came to Australia, cordial was a new thing to us. In the States, it was called concentrate. Okay, so a cordial didn't mean anything to me. It just meant like juice or I, I didn't really know what it was. And I remember one time the boys had gotten hold of some cordial and they were just drinking it straight. They thought it was the greatest thing ever. Yeah. And I'm like, that looks really thick. What is that? So let me just use an example with cordial. Let's say you're that 600 mil... God's truth, let's compare it to a 600 mil bottle of cordial that's full strength, undiluted. It's the real deal, right? It, it, the contents match the dietary or lack of dietary benefit that's on the outside, right? They're matching up. We are like a bottle of cordial in a sense that is going to be measured against the standard, because we bear God's image as children of God. And should we exchange the truth of God for a lie, it's like the contents of that bottle are diluted. We put out the truth of God, and we take in just water. And so we don't have the savor of Christ that we should. We, we are not as effective in ministry as we ought to be. And when God calls us home as his beloved children... Our lives are going to be measured against his word because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive reward. It's like error. If we, if we begin to adopt uh, aberrant doctrines or practices, we can still be saved, 
but we will not receive the full reward that God has reserved for us. And you know, as a child of God, if he has a reward for you, you should really want that reward, all of it. You should not be content to have half a reward when he has a full reward reserved for you. So when he says, look to yourself, and you say, does my life match the love of Christ? And the awesome thing is, knowing God's word, examining ourselves, obeying him, that's a lifestyle for us. And when we repent, we are made whole. We can, it's like, yeah, well, none of us measure up to God's standard, right? No, that's why we need the gospel. That's why we need salvation. But God has a reward for you. And if you want it, we should take steps to receive it. And if we say, hey, there's, I'm reading this, and there's a goad to do something. And there's a nail that's a bit bent and rusty in my life. Then I need to have that pulled out and I need to be fixed up straight in alignment with God's word because I want what God wants for me and to seek to do that in his strength because there's nothing God tells you to do or commands you to do that you cannot do without him. With him, you can do all things that he asks you to do. God's a restorer of souls. He wants us to be full-strength truth, not watery or weak need. Verse 9. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Doctrine and teaching about Jesus are central. They're critical to the Christian faith. To transgress is to turn aside or to overstep the mark. It's kind of like a foot foul when you're throwing the javelin, right? That's a transgression, and you're disqualified. That throw doesn't count. Paul, he uses a lot of sporting analogies in his letters, and uh, he says, I don't want to be disqualified. Like, I'm com- I want to compete. I remember watching the Olympics... I think it was this last year, well, the last year they were on, when uh, there was a sprinter who false started, and you false start once, and you're done. It was like in a prelim. He didn't even get to run the prelim. He was just out. It's like, whoa, that is rough. You have to train your entire life, and you make it to the Olympics, and you false start on a prelim, and you don't even get to try. You didn't even get to compete. So transgression's a big deal. Teachers who, be, who go beyond the scripture, who transgress, who say more than what the Bible is saying, they should not be granted audience, is what John is saying. This need to abide in the doctrine of Christ, it implies that, number one, not all do, and number two, that it's possible to depart from the faith. Now, this departure may not be total apostasy, but no amount of departure from truth is safe because to depart from truth is to depart from God. Those two are tied together, right? God is that righteous standard. And when we depart from the truth, we move away from God. And there's just no safety in doing that whatsoever. If we are going to walk with God, we must abide in his doctrine. We must obey him. If we abide in the doctrine of Jesus, it says we have both the Father and the Son. So through Jesus, 
He's the one that gives us access to the Father through the Spirit. I like what Boyce said in the Enduring Word commentary about uh, people who would say, well, we need to progress. You know, we, we want to move forward in our faith and in doing so move away from truth. He says this, there is a true progress in the Christian life, but it is progress based on a deeper knowledge of the historical biblical Christ. Progress on any other ground may be called progress, but it is a progress that leaves God behind and is therefore not progress at all. So we can't leave Jesus behind, right? Don't go beyond him when we're supposed to be walking with him. We're, we can be like the little puppy that thinks he knows where the master's taking him and like pulling at the lead and going every which way. Has no idea where he's going. Just smelling the world and excited about anything. And But we're to be walking with. We have to heal. We have to respond to his commands, not just do our own thing. So John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. In those days, churches often met in homes. It was common to extend hospitality to other Christians. If there was a, a traveling preacher or another Christian, you would extend hospitality to them as a fellow believer. Now, to greet someone in the East was an elaborate occasion. We just say greet, greet like, I don't even have to talk. You just go like, nod, like, or a wink. It's a little awkward. Uh, but you can, you know, shake hands. How you going? Cool. You know, and just it, not even stop. You could be walking one way, walking the other way. Hey, how you going? How you going? That's not the kind of greeting that's being talked about here. To to greet someone in the East, it often involved, to and, and to receive them into your home, it meant anointing them with oil. It meant giving them water. It meant offering them protection. It even meant meals and likely spending the night. And it was customary, we see it throughout Scripture, that if someone, you receive them into your house and they were going to leave, you would try to stop them from leaving. You would at least say, well, let's have lunch first. You, know, you can't leave now. It's, it's hot outside. Just hang out. Lunch is over. You've had tea. And then it's like, all right, got to get going. Well, oh, no, no, the day is far spent. Why don't you stay a little later? Just spend the night. It'll be great. Okay. And this could go on for days. Like, you, this was what you did. In, to receive a guest in that culture meant a commitment to protect that person from harm. The context of this passage is saying to receive believers, professing believers, who spread false doctrine about Jesus. So you weren't to entertain them. You weren't to let them be the guest speaker that night. You were not to, to encourage them in their practice of spreading falsehood. It says to receive or to greet them would make the host a partaker, really an enabler of them spreading lies. And and people were not to... So this was a really difficult thing because the culture said one thing, the, the hospitable thing that you have to offer to everyone, but then because they were spreading falsehoods about Christ, God is saying another thing. They weren't to entertain them in that way. Because of this context, I would not apply this prohibition to greeting or speaking to someone who uh, follows a different doctrine or 
uh, comes to your door professing another faith. That if you, you know, see someone who comes up, that you just, you slam the door in their face or you just avoid talking to them or shun them. How else will they hear the truth? How else will they hear the real gospel? We cannot, the, the point is, we cannot pretend to fellowship, nor can we truly fellowship with people who are lying about Jesus Christ, who are spreading false doctrine about him. There's no connection between light and darkness, truth and error. We can't have a place, that cannot have a place in our homes or in our lives. And we don't want to enable others to fall prey to that, to drift from the truth. So we, I, I can look at this as like, well, the, the Christian materials that you have, the ones that you alone or approve of, make sure that they're solid biblically. Don't allow false doctrine or things that deviate from Christ to be perpetuated or encouraged by you. So how can we know if someone is a false teacher, if someone is the one that we were not to uh, be hospitable towards in that way? Well, we have to compare their words with the truth of God's word. Just for the sake of time. Let's see. Yeah, I think I'll read it. In Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So it's the fruit, the fruit of the lips, that you will know if someone, and measuring it against the word of God, you will know if it's true or not. You guys have bought packets of seeds before, and there's a nice picture on the outside, usually, of what this you know, tomatoes or whatever should be. Well, if you were to, let's say, buy tomatoes, if you believe they were tomatoes, and you put them in the ground, and they grew up to be beetroot, you would know that something is amiss. Something is not adding up exactly. That beetroot does not look like this picture. So you can know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that those were not tomato seeds that suddenly evolved into beetroot. No. They were beetroot seeds all along, mispackaged. You can know that. And so if someone comes to you and they claim to have the truth, and it does not match the packet, because the word, the Bible says, is like good seed, if it doesn't match, and if the results don't match, you can know, well, that's not of God. It's not true. Now, it isn't our job to roast anyone. God will see that all the bad trees are cut down and thrown to the fire. But we are to be vigilant, to be sober and watchful, and to know what the Word of God says. To be like those in Berea who daily searched the Scriptures to see if the claims of the preacher were so. That's what we ought to do. We should look to ourselves and hold fast to the truth. Verse 12. Having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. 
It was a pretty short letter, but he had more he would have loved to say. And he says, I I look forward to seeing you face to face. Then my joy will be full. We can see that John's love for believers is shown in his desire to meet and to fellowship with other Christians. We see that in the heart of Jesus. Even when he was really sought after in one town, he says, hey, we've got to be going. We've got other places to go, other people I want to meet with and see. Paul, he said to Barnabas in Acts 15.36, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So there was a personal interest there where they had preached the word, they had new brethren in a different town. He says, let's go back and see how they're doing. I'm not only happy to hear a report about them. I want to see them face to face. If we love the brethren, we will want to see them face to face. We will care about how they're doing. I don't know about you, but it saddens me when I see a digital interaction replacing a face to face discussion. You know, I I found myself in a waiting room the other day or on the train, and it seems everyone's in a little digital world that they can edit and filter and control instead of enjoying conversation with people around them. And it's come to a point where a conversation is seen as intrusive and unpleasant and, and not desirable. Now, I am blessed by the capacity that we have with technology. We can speak face-to-face with someone on the other side of the world. I'm confronted by my uh, lack of use of that to talk to other people that I know all over the world. But, brothers and sisters, how about setting time aside to meet face-to-face with a Christian this week to talk about what God's been speaking to you about, what you're reading in the Bible, just to encourage one another. How about just saying, I'm going to meet with one person face-to-face this week. You can even use your mobile. I don't care how you do it. But I encourage you, meet with somebody with that intent so your joy may be full. Now, your fullness of joy does not come from people. This is the cool thing. It doesn't matter your, I guess, your domestic situation because fullness of joy, for John, it wasn't dependent upon him seeing this woman or because of friendship, or even meeting face-to-face, fullness of joy comes from Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. But it's walking in love where we experience this fullness of joy. When we choose to obey God, we find ourselves just uh, really strengthened in Him. Have you ever had a one-to-one with somebody where you were just talking, it was Christian fellowship, and you left just fired up? really elated, and you're like, this is why I was born. That's a beautiful thing to experience. Um, I love that God gives us fullness of joy. When we abide in Christ's love by keeping his commands, his joy remains in us, the Bible says, and our joy is full. We read that in John 15, 9 through 12. There was one time where Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going to be leaving, and he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And they were really sad because they wanted to be with Jesus. And in John 16, 24, Jesus said, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So ask him. We'll receive. Now this fullness only comes through the Spirit. And we can receive the Spirit by asking, it says in Luke eleven thirteen, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we can have fullness of joy when we choose to walk in obedience to God through loving one another. And that is received by the Spirit. So I pray, family in Christ, that the love of Christ in you would move you to action for the good of others. This is not a new commandment, but may we take new steps to obey it. Intentional steps in that direction as God leads. Then we will be abiding in God's truth. We'll be abiding in his love and receive a full reward. I want that reward. You're not selfish for wanting what God's given to you. It's his just due that we should want it. Let's praise him. Father, you are a great God. You are awesome. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for your truth that you've provided for us, that you have a full reward reserved for us. And Lord, I pray that we would be those who walk in truth and love, who speak the truth, who love the truth. And thank you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that we have a way to the Father through you. Lord, I pray that you would fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit, that you would give us unction and leading to do the things you've commanded us, that you would teach us, as you remind us, to love one another, what that looks like. Thank you that it's not just something to check off a list, that I've loved someone today, but your love fills us, Lord. That is a fruit of the Spirit that we can all have. So I pray, Lord, that we would have the the fruit of the Spirit evident in our lives this week, that we would follow hard after you, that we would take time to meet face-to-face with people to show how we that we love them and that we care about them. Thank you, Lord, that you care about us. You say to be casting our cares upon you because you care for us, and that will never change. Lord, in this world we will have tribulation, but you have said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome. And Lord, we have overcome through the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. We glorify you, Lord, and we praise you again for your awesome love, for your amazing truth, and for your grace and peace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.